0: Welcome to the Native Advertising Powerhouse, a podcast dedicated to help publishers and native ad studio professionals build a solid framework for their native advertising efforts. The host of the show is Jesper Lawson, founder of the Native Advertising Institute. My name is Jesper Lawson, and you're listening to the ninth episode of the Native Advertising Powerhouse. Today I have Mary Gail Pizimenti, VP of Content at CBS Interactive, joining me on the show. Welcome Mary Gail. Could you start by telling us about CBS Interactive and more specifically your role there?
1: Thank you so much for having me. Um, I have been at CBS Interactive since April of 2018, and I am overseeing the content strategies of Chowhound and TV Guide as well as creating new verticals within the CNET Media Group. Um, I'm very excited about this role because I develop content strategies, working with the editorial teams, but I also work very closely with Studio 61, which is our branded content team, as well as our sales and marketing organizations. CBS Interactive is really a great house of premium content brands. Along with TV Guide and Chow we have CNET, we have GameSpot, we have CBSSports.com, we have um, CBSNews.com. I'm in the New York office, but we have offices in New York, San Francisco, Fort Lauderdale and Burbank. And... We are very much of a multi-platform organization or, or a digital media organization. So it's it's really, so far so good. It's been a fantastic opportunity. And I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about editorial teams and branded content teams can work best together. The
0: job that you have now at CBS Interactive is not really your first job in terms of uh, neither you know, the editorial side of the business or the, the branded content. Could you, could you tell us a little bit more about what you've been doing before joining CBS?
1: Sure. Um, I started my career out actually at Condi Nast. I was on the editorial side um, as managing editor of a number of, of magazines, including Details, GQ, Domino, etc. I then was on the digital side there. Um, and about eight years ago, I decided to leave and get into branded content. Um, I had the good fortune of working at Federated Media um, with John Battelle, who was really one of the, the godfathers of native advertising. He, Federated Media, for people who don't know it, created um, the first really blog network, and uh, Mashable, TechCrunch, Apartment Therapy, Deuce were some of the early blogs there, um, Business Insider. I then went on to the HuffPost partner studio um, and ran branded content there. And then most recently, I ran the branded content studio called Mashable Brand X at Mashable.
0: Great. So you've been working on the editorial side and as well as the native advertising or branded content side. You mentioned before something about those two working together to many I think, especially journalists, that is a very much a no-go, you know, the whole division of church and state. But you think they can work together. How, how could that happen?
1: Well, first of all, one thing that's really important is just to be clear, my role oversees editorial. The editors and chiefs run the day-to-day editorial of the media brands. So I think it is incredibly forward-thinking for CBS Interactive to create a role like mine where I oversee the editorial teams, but I am not involved in the day-to-day operation of producing editorial content. And I am also not part of the branded content team as well. So I'm, I sit in I, what I'll call Switzerland, <laughs> in <laughs> that I am able to work and collaborate very closely with both teams and can have you know, a neutral view when we have something that we need to work on in terms of responding to an RFP from a client or an agency. It is very, very rare now that I see that we can respond to an RFP without having an editorial activation as well as a branded content activation. You really must have both.
0: And I think the, 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 just the concept of the editorial team and the branded content team being anywhere near each other to some, especially editorial staff would, would, you know, right. be a, a very dangerous thing. You know, the whole division of church and state and all, you know, have you, have you had those concerns raised by editorial staff?
1: Um, no, because that's the whole reason that edit should work with the branded team. If everybody's off doing their work separately and they're not collaborating, then there's a danger of, you know, edit being frustrated with what the branded team has done or there being a duplication of effort right like the branded team might be doing something over here the edit team's doing something over here and and, in essence they're this it's the same content so you don't want that either the most important thing is that you're just transparent with the audience you tell the audience that the branded team has been working on it you you know there's a line at the beginning of the content or at the end of the content or Some sort of, you know, it might be something on the video. But um, I think that communication is so important. You just have to communicate. You have to, you know, have planning meetings. And each side needs to understand what the other one's doing.
0: I mean, you've been working with this for a long time. Have you seen a shift in the way that these two different teams look at each other?
1: Um, I think that... You know, the edit team still looks at brand, the branded content teams with skepticism, sure, <laughs> of course, right? I think it also very, 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 very much depends on what vertical it is. So, in, like, as an example of food media or <clears throat> fashion or beauty media, the content itself is product oriented, right? right. So it's hard to do fashion or beauty or food media without showing product, yeah. right? So that, it's a much more seamless collaboration because if you're being organic with the audience and true to the audience, that they expect to see that. You can't show on someone how to do a smoky eye without showing an eyeliner, right? <laughs> right. But in other verticals where, um, you know, like tech, for example... You know, you can talk about tech without necessarily showing it. Some of it, you know, there are areas in tech editorial that are for reviews, right? And are very commerce oriented. Mm -hmm. There's other tech content that is kind of how-to content. And so, you know, from a branded perspective, you just have to be very clear whether or not the content is coming from editorial or the content is coming from a branded team.
0: Mm. There are some publishers that are actually using their editorial team to create the branded content. W- what do you think of that concept?
1: Again, I think it depends on the vertical. Mm-hmm. Like, there isn't a one answer across the board. It depends on what vertical you're creating content for, how transparent you're being with the user, what your resources are. I mean, Look, if you have, I'll use an example of Food 52. Food 52 is a food media site in the States. And it was started by a New York Times food critic. And she started it with a partner. And over time, increasingly, the revenue that that media brand has comes a great deal from commerce. Okay. So they develop exclusive relationships with like cookware Makers or, um, you know, kitchen utensil makers, and she takes some revenue from selling that merchandise on her site. Again, with full transparency to the user, um, and you know, and they are recommendations from the team. She does that. She also does a fair amount of that. That site also does a fair amount of branded content. But again, that is their revenue model. Their revenue model is commerce, branded content. Um, and not as much direct sales. They do direct sales, but not as much. So, I, again, I think if you are just being honest with the with your audience, and you are doing it with integrity, and you are doing it with, you know, expertise, it works.
0: Okay. You talked before about you know the organization of um, of a studio. I'd like to go back to that for a second. Let's say you were to start a branded content studio all over. Mm. What, what would be the fo- five most important functions or roles in that in, in that agency?
1: Well, I'm sorry to answer it this way, but I have to. I'm, I'm always the kind of person who needs to put things in context. Uh-huh. So if I had no other support teams, meaning doing a branded content studio as part of CBS Interactive or part of, Oath or AOL is very different than doing one as part of Mashable Right, because Mashable is a much smaller organization. There aren't as many support teams. For example, at CBS Interactive, I have a whole SEO support team to help us. Hmm. We have a business intelligence team that's giving us analytics all day long on our social channels. So if I answer that question, I'm going to, so I'm going to answer that question two ways <laughs> okay. One way is if it's part of a small organization and another way is if it's part of a large organization. If it's part of a small organization, I want insights and analytics expertise, both in terms of, you know, making us optimized content on distribution channels, but also giving us in- insights that we can provide to clients about how the content's performing and why mm-hmm. I'd want, um, SEO expertise to, you know, obviously it's branded content, right? But you want to understand what's trending, what's going on, what's going on on the big, pl- you know, you want to understand what's going on with Google, what people are searching for. You know, I think a mistake that people make is that, you know, branded content is not organic, right? It's usually a paid, but you need to be up on all of that. You need to understand all of that. Then you need strategists. You need people who can bridge the gap between a sales team and a creative team in terms of responding to an RFP, in terms of putting together a good go-to-market story for your brand, as well as a go-to-market response for that RFP. Somebody who's really good at storytelling. I mean... We think about, you know, branded content teams are always selling storytelling, but if they can't tell a good story about why you should be their partner, you know, that's critical. Mm. And then finally, uh, you know, or most importantly, and you wouldn't have a studio without it is a really strong creative team. Right. People who can think out of the box, people who can, I think creative people in branded content studios need to be very patient. In what way? they need to be very good listeners. You have to collaborate with a, with a brand team when you create branded content. Mm. On editorial teams you can just go create your content in service of the audience. But there's a third player when branded content comes into it. So creative people by definition are a little outside of the box and they have all these ideas and but they but a branded content creative person, a good one, needs to be able to listen to their client and help deliver something that will meet their KPIs and goals as much as delight the audience. Mm.
0: And what about sales?
1: Sales, I mean, you know, sales is, in my experience, has been part of a sales team. And one of the things that they sell is branded content. Mm -hmm. Um, So in the teams that I've worked with, sales has not been part of the branded content studio. Okay. It's been part of a sales organization. When the strategists, right, have those people that are putting together those responses, they have more of a sales-oriented mentality. Mm.
0: And do you have you seen them going into the sales process alongside the salespeople?
1: Yes, they have to. It's a must. Okay. The strategists must be with the seller arm-in-arm selling these deals.
0: Mm. So that was the small organization. What, what about the big one?
1: So for a larger organization, because there are central teams around analytics and insights and SEO and end sales and even strategy, um, branded content teams in large organizations can have many more bells and whistles around creating the content. Hmm. Like they may be able to have someone who specializes in you know, video, visual storytelling. Um, uh, they can specialize in uh, this This person is more review oriented, meaning the branded content team can look a lot more like an editorial team. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, might have a motion graphics specialist, meaning you can really have people in there that can play with formats and do really interesting creative work because so much of those other things are taken care of in central teams. Hmm. I mean, I didn't even mention product and, you know, engineers and all that, like that's, again, in the small organization, you know, you need someone to build that stuff. Who's, go- who's gonna build the things that you're making. So that either needs to be someone on that team or, or you outsource that, or in the larger organization, there's a central product team that works on it. Right. It's interesting. I'm finding, like, just in the past year, that there's less um, kind of new, cool formats, and more. It's more about interesting partnerships.
0: Okay, could you elaborate a little on that?
1: Gosh, I don't know whether you saw, but Tastemade teamed up with AT and T to do a n- docu series called The Pitch, which is about English football, as in soccer.
0: Uh huh.
1: Like. Tastemade, AT&T, like, like, you know, like, that's an unusual combination.
0: And for the, for the listeners who don't know TasteMe, could you just...
1: Sure. Tastemade is a um, food-centric uh, video brand in the United States. Okay. Um, it's, uh, it's really, it's food influencers, it's, it's video, it's pretty much all video. Mm -hmm. Um, But they are doing an enormous number of um, branded content work with companies. So that, Burger King did a piece, a branded content piece, about how fast food can help people understand net neutrality. Okay. Which was really interesting. (laughs) So AR, I think, is gaining prominence over VR, but it's not as much about formats as it is about different ways of storytelling and interesting partnerships being formed. Mm -hmm. You know, we just signed a deal, a campaign. Chowhound is working with Venmo Mm -hmm. and Venmo wanted kind of lifestyle content around, you know, using Venmo for payments, right? So we're doing a piece that is about, um, it's like creating a curated menu. So if you're sitting at home are you familiar with Venmo?
0: Yeah, I've seen it. But, you know, again, the, some of the listeners are not from the States, so you might want to.
1: Right. So Venmo is a payment service. Service. Mm-hmm. It's an easy, super easy way for you to send money electronically to somebody else or digitally to somebody else. And um, it's very, very popular actually among millennials because there's also this feature to it where you can send little messages or emojis you can show someone your activity. It's a little bit of a social payment. Mm-hmm. So we uh, Chowhound, and, and working with Studio 61, which is our branded content team, is coming up with a strategy where we are thinking about the millennials sitting at home and maybe even a few people, and they want to order in. And Venmo allows you to curate your own menu. So instead of ordering from your favorite Thai place or Japanese place, Venmo allows you quickly so that everybody can order exactly what they want and come up with this sort of created menu, like your own distinct restaurant. Okay. So that's an example of Chow Hound partnering with with Venmo, the branded content team, and the three of us working together to produce a branded content campaign that is, you know, creating something unique.
0: But you're touching on an interesting point because there's a lot of publishers who are, you know, Thinking about what kind of partnerships they should do and even, you know, media agencies when they get involved. And so I, I think that a lot of publishers are maybe looking at this a little narrow in terms of, you know, who would be a good fit for their audience. And of course, you need to take that into account, obviously. Uh, but could you, you share a little with how do you see what do you need to be looking at when you're looking for for partners for good branded content?
1: So it's not even so much like, what are you looking at? I mean, I always, always start from the place of the story, the goal in the story, right? So at CBS Interactive, my role, I actually am in an editorial role now, and, but I work very closely with the branded content team, the marketing team, and the sales team in terms of creating branded packages that have both an editorial element and a branded content element. Our branded content team is called Studio 61. So if an RFP comes in and we're thinking about what to do, one of the exciting things for me at CBS Interactive, I mean, Jasper, when we've spoken in the past, I've been, I was part of Mashable, and that was just Mashable. Or even when I was at AOL, it was mostly predominantly HuffPost. So here at CBS Interactive, I oversee Chowhound and TV Guide. There's also GameSpot and CNET there's CBS Sports and CBS News as part of the portfolio here. So when an RFP comes in, we look at or think about who would be the most interesting partners to do storytelling with or around. Like how can we, we start with the idea, we create the idea, and then we see who's around or what assets are available to do that storytelling. So a lot, I think many more marketers are interesting, interested in seeing interesting mashups. Like we put a proposal together around tailgating, right? Tailgating is a common thing at football games in the United States. And, you know, people do these elaborate spreads. Like really, I mean, super gourmet, everything from super gourmet to like slow roasting a pig to like a chili bake off, like people do these elaborate things before football games in the United States. Right. And so we were going to we put a proposal together where Chow Chowhound would team up with CBS Sports to do a tailgating, you know, challenge of some sort. That's what I mean. I, I personally am seeing yes, a lo- still a lot of interesting formats out there, a lot of immersive storytelling where, you know, there are many, many more multimedia things being brought into content. But I, the things that that's the most interesting to me are these kind of multi partnerships.
0: But when you come up with creative ideas like that, do you is that without waiting for an AFP? Because you know one of the challenges that some publishers are facing, if they have a good idea and then they go to someone, if they don't already have the budget, you know, as in they already decided to spend, it's hard to get the money uh, from the advertisers. But do you do that? Do you like come up with an idea, try to sell that before there's an actual AFP?
1: Well, we do we do it two different ways. So one, back to the Venmo example, um, I won't share numbers, but with that when that RFP came in, it was for a certain amount of money, and our concept would require more than that. So we pitched it. In other words, I think I always always recommend like respond to the RFP exactly what they're asking for, but also offer an idea that is out of the box and well beyond what the budget was. The client ended up spending 50% more oh, wow. because they liked the idea so much.
0: I'm sure that a, a lot of publishers would love projects like that where they can actually elevate the budget.
1: If you don't ask for it, you will never get it. Right. You, you have an opportunity, right? You have an audience, they are, they've RFP'd you, they're interested in seeing what you have to say. If you answer exactly what they want, You know, they'll go with someone else. Like I will say nine times out of 10, when we'll, you know, answer the RFP, absolutely give them what they want, but also give them something that perhaps they haven't thought of or that may be at a higher budget level. That's how we deal with the RFP side of things. Then there's also the proactive side of things. And that is your teams should always be thinking of good, big, unique ideas and package them up and then ask your sellers to take a meeting about it. So I have a couple of ideas we're working on on the TV Guide side. So I'm putting ideas together and then saying to the sales team, go out there and, and let's talk about it. Sometimes they won't get the meeting, but sometimes because I have the idea, the client will take the meeting. And and proactive takes longer, right? Like. You're not going to walk in the door and they're not going to hand you you hundreds of thousands of dollars, but they see that you're being creative. They see that you understand their business. They see that you are willing to be proactive. You're not going to just sit back and wait. And that is really significant.
0: I think you're touching on a very important point here also, um, given the fact that this whole agency environment, you know, advertising agencies, media agencies, PR agencies, and all the studios is is kind of, you know, up in the air. And a lot of studios are trying to find out where they fit in. And I'm pretty sure that, that being proactive as opposed to just sitting down and waiting for someone to ask you for or something is a way to position yourself as as what you're good at as in the studio, which should be you know coming up with great creative editorial ideas.
1: I mean, you know, in my experience, the two things that are will win you business are great ideas and a really really strong presentation. And what I mean by that is a strong creative presentation. And secondly, and you know, this this doesn't get talked about a lot, but great relationships. Again, my experience with RFPs, certainly in the United States, is that a brand or an agency may RFP anywhere between 10 and 20 media organizations. Hopefully, it's not 20. It's more like 10. Even 5... To 10. Let's just say five to 10. The media partners or studios that they have a good relationship with are going to be in the top three consideration set. Mm. In other words, the relationship is very, very important. And the only way you build a relationship is by talking to an agency or a client partner outside of the RFP process. Understand their business. The first question I always ask when I sit down with a client is, what problem do you have to solve? How can we help you? Mm. And listen to them and offer them proactive ideas, offer them research, help them be smarter about their business. So we are, with TV Guide, we're actually fielding this study. Uh, With TV Guide, our editorial strategy is around shows, TV shows, and fandom. Uh The rise of fandom in the United States is a really interesting dynamic. So fans of shows, there's a show called Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which is kind of a comedy cop show. And... Uh, the network wanted to cancel it. And there were so many fans that chimed in on social media that they brought the show back. Okay, And so that's, that's a lot of power, right? So the whole strategy of TV guide is around shows and fandom. And we are doing a study that's called the fandom factor that we'll have ready probably in October. And that's something that the company is doing proactively. The media brand is doing proactively but that we will go around with sellers to agencies and endemic advertisers and entertainment and share this research with them. That is a proactive move, but it's a really good way of building a relationship beyond just having a RFP relationship.
0: I think you're touching on a very important point. I remember you were speaking at Native Advertising Days, the the edition number one, and uh, that was back in the days where you're still at, at AOL and Huffington Post. And I remember you were talking a lot about uh, the importance of having a strategy. Now, a lot of publishers, uh, and we're going to be talking about that in a minute, how to organize your your studio. But a lot of publishers are t- trying to create a mirror of the editorial organization. So they'll have all the creative people on there. Now, one of the things that's difficult is to have this like the agency side of the business which includes what you're talking about now which includes the ability to create research to uh create strategies could you you know talk a little bit about the importance of being able to do that as 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 a publisher
1: you mean uh, research and strategies yes so what's interesting about my role now and the reason i'm so excited to have it is My title is VP of content, but really what my job is, is to manage content strategies. Okay. So I have a GM above me who's running the business of the editorial, meaning, you know, the forecasting, the P&L, all that. And I also have editors and chiefs who report to me. Yet I work very closely with Martin Glenn, who's the man that runs Studio 61, which is our branded content studio. So my job is to create an editorial strategy that is smart in terms of audience like there's three things that I need to do so I manage again the editorial strategy of TV Guide and Chowhound at the moment all of the work that I do needs to build audience build the brand in other words build the brand of TV Guide or Chowhound and drive revenue right those are my three goals so I was very interested in in talking to you and talking about the fact that I think there's been a, there's a major shift in the way editorial teams and sales teams and marketing teams are working together. Whenever I go to a sales call with a salesperson, meaning with my content strategy hat on and the branded content team or the marketing team, we all have to do it together. It used to be that the salesperson would just go in and say, here are the audience numbers, here's display, here's you know, here are our numbers, you know, and marketing would say, here's our reach in terms of audience. And, you know, this idea will guarantee X, Y, Z. But I think because of how fundamentally social media has changed our culture, but also media in general, and that the audience's desires are so transparent and also measurable every minute of every day mm-hmm. that you really have to go in and talk to agencies and client partners As a united front, you can't just go in there and talk about squares and rectangles and audience reach and not talk about the idea. You have to talk holistically about how all of that works together. So the content strategies that I develop are always multi-platform. They are social, they are mobile, they are podcasts, they are newsletters, they're, you know, event activations, they are holistic.
0: And why is that? Why is that so important?
1: Because I think a lot of certainly advertising or media was was a lot about the medium, right? Like this is content in a magazine, this is content on TV, this is content, you know, it's different now. Mm. In other words, like the destination of sitting in front of your TV to ingest content or sitting, you know, with the magazine and reading it, that's gone, right? The social media platform, nine times out of 10 is the doorway, right? Mm-hmm. And the audience is experiencing your content on another platform, meaning your customer, your client, your, your audience is discovering you and often digesting your content, not in your owned and operated properties. Mm-hmm. And so you need to go to where that audience is. You can't just sit back and hope that they come to you. And the way that you do that is, I'll use the example of TV Guide. So, if we want to answer the fundamental question for the audience of what should I watch tonight, think about it. I mean, a lot of people ask themselves that question, right? In the United States, there are seventeen hundred shows out there right now, and there are you know a dozen, a dozen major streaming platforms, but dozens more coming. You know, network, cable. YouTube. There are so many different places that you can watch shows. So if we want to fundamentally answer that question, I need to go to where that audience is. So we have an app that we've created called Watch This Now, where people can get push notifications. We're creating a podcast. We have a daily newsletter as well as a weekly newsletter. We're creating content on site. We have social channels on Instagram, on YouTube. It's important that our content is wherever people are looking for shows to watch. Mm-hmm. And so how does that translate to the client partner? So if my audience, then then we get into the audience breakdown and demos. So if my audience, if I have 15 million people, and that's about the number of people that come to TV Guide, if I have 15 million people, how old are they? What are they interested in? What shows are they watching? What? What are the trends in terms of what they're watching? What are the trends in terms of how they're watching it? If that marketer wants to use entertainment to solve one of their goals or to, I'll use an example, Um, Showtime wants to drive subscription or, or Hulu or Netflix. Netflix wants to drive subscription or Amazon Prime. So if I'm gonna work with that endemic advertiser, I need to show that advertiser that I am everywhere that audience is looking for guidance in what to watch. Mm -hmm. That's why it's important. That's why editorial working very closely with the branded content team and the seller. I mean, I literally will walk into meetings arm in arm with the seller because the brand needs to, it's too heavy a lift for the seller to have to communicate all of that, Mm. you know, because I'm running a dynamic, editorial team, and we are working on this on a daily basis to try to find this audience and attract this audience and optimize the content creatively, not just algorithmically, so that we're drawing more and more audience to the content.
0: I can see why you want to be on different platforms to engage the audience. Is there also a side to this that touches on what the advertiser is trying to gain. Now, you mentioned uh, Netflix is trying to drive subscription, for example. There are some platforms that are better for top funnel content, like awareness generating things. And then there are other channels that are probably better for more bottom funnel stuff, you know, commercial calls to action. Does that play a role in your, when you're, you know, laying out the strategy for which platforms to put what on?
1: Yes, absolutely. I'm glad you bring that up because that's very, very important. The other thing about it is the content strategy is, incre- and increasingly editorial teams are set up this way. You have to make sure that the content that you are distributing on that platform is really organic to the platform. So you're absolutely right. They're, so for example, like Instagram has just started something called Instagram TV, mm-hmm. which is long form video basically. So that's going to be a great format for more high funnel storytelling. However, just regular Instagram is still kind of a great place if you're trying to move product. You know, I mean, you need to be very careful, right? You don't want to overwhelm the user with so much commerce oriented content that you're turning them off. Of course. But there's still an opportunity for that. So, You're absolutely right. The content strategy, don't just take a piece of content and then just put it everywhere in the same way. You need to be very careful about how you're crafting it so that it is organic to the platform, yet still serving the same goal.
0: But there's still a lot of people out there who have this idea that uh, native advertising is exclusively a top funnel game. So think about—you mentioned Netflix before. You know the the very famous piece they did with the New York Times. You know, orange is the new black. Very top funnel stuff. A lot of people uh, are still saying that's all native advertising is. Do you, would you agree with that statement?
1: No, I don't actually. I think that I, you know, and and actually, by the way, <laughs> Netflix is probably a terrible example. Okay. Because. Only because they have been so effective at marketing to their audience, they're almost in a category by themselves. For example, I just went to San Diego Comic-Con, which is the big, I'm not sure whether you're familiar with it, but it is literally a few hundred thousand people go to San Diego every year and they dress up in costumes. It's so big and they're so well known that Netflix wasn't even there. Like in other words, they don't even need to attract that audience because they're Brand recognition with that audience is so incredibly high, meaning a millennial Gen Z audience, that they weren't even there. Hmm. So back to the question at hand, I don't think that it's just a top funnel play. However, I think that there is a journey. And I think you actually, I've always said this, I actually think no matter who you are, you have to start with high funnel. Because because content's so distributed, because you need to do different things on different platforms, the audience is looking for you to give them something of value first before you can offer more low, low funnel messages. Mm-hmm. So best example, all right, so TV. Let's say Hulu is trying to drive subscription. They're, they're probably a better example. Um, they have really good brand recognition, but they, they really do want to attract more subscribers. So I may start by collaborating with them on a whole series of, let's say I find out, and I'm sorry, I'm making this up, but let's say I find out that they are after women 30 to 40. So I I may come up with a whole package of rom-com recommendations, romantic comedy recommendations. And we may do like, you know, a fun series like interview cast members from various shows, and there may be a style element to it, there may be a dating advice element to it, like a a bunch of fun different things. And there's nothing about that that's going to drive subscription off the bat. But my point in saying that is that if we do this content, and we attract that audience, what you're doing is you're breaking down sales resistance. You're giving them something that is entertaining them first Mm -hmm. without asking anything of them. That's really important. I mean, I always say that your content should either entertain or be news that you can use, meaning it should provide a service or it should entertain you. So if you start with that content and you build a relationship up with that user, that audience, that woman right in your audience that you're trying to attract, You do that a little bit, you see that she's interested in it, then you start to move down the funnel and you introduce lower funnel content that then will lead to, you know, you having the permission to ask or to suggest subscription. Hmm. You see what I mean? Like, I actually don't think it's one or the other. I think it's a journey. You need to build a relationship with the audience. You just can't show up saying, I want you to subscribe.
0: Right. And I probably think it's a very important thing to be, for, for publishers to be able to do. if they were only able to provide top funnel content on the other hand, then that wouldn't you know probably wouldn't be enough for advertisers. I mean, there might be an emphasis on the top funnel stuff, but if you you know if you can't play the bottom funnel game at all as a publisher, you will be reduced to a content producing or distributing channel.
1: Well, I think it goes back to my the first thing that I said about when I meet with a client it totally depends on what their goal is. And there are 90% of the situations I've encountered fall into usually five categories. So the first category is, they're introducing a new product, Mm -hmm. right? In other words, like the content strategy and approach should depend on the goal. Like if you're introducing an entirely new product that hasn't been out there before, that usually means that you need to do a lot of content in a short period of time that will be really memorable. Because if you're, you know, you're trying to break through the noise. Mm -hmm. The second category is you have a legacy brand and you're trying to reintroduce an audience to that content. That might be less content, but over a longer period of time. The next category is you're trying to introduce your your brand to an entirely new audience. So that means you need to change perception. I'll use an example of I know that Cadillac, for example, the car company over the last five years has been really working hard to do that. And they've made a lot of moves to try to introduce their line of cars or line of vehicles to an entirely new audience. And so they took a very particular approach. And then... Sometimes they're, you know, the brand is in crisis a bit, (laughs) you know, and they need to do something very quickly to just, uh, they need a really good, super fast burst of positive energy around the brand. Mm -hmm. Or finally, the main, you know, the the easy, they just want to move product. They just simply need to move product. Mm -hmm. But I think if you start with the goal, and then you build the content strategy off of the goal, that means you're going to approach it very differently.
0: Yeah. Have you ever worked with or been involved in projects where the goal was actually to drive subscription for the brand, not for like a a Netflix Hulu type thing, but there's a lot of brands who are spending a lot of money on what you'd call content marketing. So building their own media properties and where they would uh, go to the publishers to do kind of a rent to own strategy. So they would rent the eyeballs of a publisher to drive them to their own blog or whatever and get them to subscribe there. So whether when they're actually trying to build their own audience, um, have you ever been involved in projects where the goal was to for, for, for the advertisers to build an audience, and drive traffic that way?
1: Um let me see if this is the right example so monster.com i don't know whether you're familiar with it but it's a jobs site (laughs) and so people do it you know come to it when they're looking for a job and so the goal of it was to bring audience to their brand is that the right example
0: it could be but it would more be if they had a let's say a newsletter so part of their funnel would be to get people to subscribe to a newsletter and then in turn uh, get their business that way. So the, the the end goal was to drive them to subscribe to a blog, for example, or a newsletter.
1: Okay, not a, not a newsletter or a blog. I would say the Monster.com example was the closest one.
0: And what happened there?
1: So what they were trying to do was, you know, Monster.com is, their business is helping people find jobs. So in order to use the site, you need to come and register. You need to come and register as a user to see job postings. Or if you are hiring someone, you need to register to post a job. Mm -hmm. So it's similar like when you want someone to look at a newsletter, you're asking them to sign up for it. So if you're saying sign up is the, right, whether it's a newsletter or a site, it's a similar use case, correct? Right. So they in particular, their very specific goal was to attract more um, minority candidates to Mm -hmm. their website. So we started to do a we did a series of articles on interviewing skills, um, particularly geared toward minority groups. So very specific recommendations and in, in terms of, you know, a lot of the recommendations are obviously across the board the same. But being really transparent and open about challenges and things that you need to watch out for and the type of culture you should seek. And it was very, very successful in terms of, and that was something we did at HuffPost.
0: Okay. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm looking at the monster.com now, and they have, for example, under career resources, they have, if I click on career advice, they have a lot of content on there themselves. Exactly. And if I was, was that what you you were trying to get traffic to?
1: So what we did in that case was we would on HuffPost, right? There would be a branded content section that was about kind of career advice, brought to you by Monster.com. Mm-hmm. And so yes, we would people. We were encouraging people to go. We were we were shining a light on the work that they were doing. I mean, this is a really good example, actually. Now that I'm talking about it, of it being a holistic strategy, right? Because you go to you go to Monster.com and you see career advice there, but we created a platform on HuffPost that was also career advice, particularly geared toward minority candidates. And so that, you know, shined a light on what Monster was doing, but it also encouraged people on another platform, people who maybe were not as familiar with Monster.com to go and check it out. Hmm. Yeah, So yeah, that's a really good example of, I mean, it's not a newsletter per se, but it's the same kind of thing. So yeah,
0: it doesn't have to be a newsletter. It's just the idea of trying to attract people or the audience to a content hub of some sort, you know, whether instead of just pushing their product, they could push, uh, in this case, career advice. Exactly. Okay. You've been doing this for a long time in different setups. Could you mention like the three biggest mistakes you've seen uh, being done when, when do, doing native advertising? It doesn't have to be around the organization uh, of a studio. It could be, you know, different things.
1: I mean, the single biggest issue that I see around branded content is that if there's, if there's misalignment between the sales team's understanding of the branded content offering and the branded content teams.
0: Oh, could you elaborate on that?
1: When you sell branded content, it's a consultative sell. I think the sellers, there was a small group of sellers that I worked with associated with the HuffPost studio who were amazing. Um, They had an ability to go in, be very consultative with the client, understand what their challenge was, and then come back and communicate it. And they could communicate to the brand also what the value of the branded content team was and then finally they were able to come back to the branded content team and translate what it is we had to deliver in a way that was really strong. If there's misalignment there, it makes it very challenging.
0: And I think when we speak to publishers, that's, that's one of the big pain points they have is, you know, First and foremost, you know, if they don't have a budget in the sales department that is, you know, dedicated to brand and content, it's always easier for them to sell what they usually sell. Yes. Um, and then there's a whole understanding what it is. What would your recommendations be to, to those, you know, stuck in an organization where it doesn't work as well?
1: So look, I mean, you all, eventually you have to, you have to convince everyone that this is a long game, right? Like. I mean, I don't know whether you're seeing this as much over there. I assume you are. But in, in the advertising world, in the marketing world here now, in the media world, increasingly Google and Facebook, are most brands are going to them for search and display. Right. Uh, then they're also buying programmatically. And those are great things, right? And And can be very effective for a brand. But in terms of really getting your hands on the strategy of what that brand is trying to achieve. Like, let's say I'm making this up. Let's say Unilever in 2019 is going to be all about sustainability. You can buy that stuff programmatically and you can get to your customer in that way. But, I, but if you really wanted to deliver Unilever's very specific message around sustainability, you've got to do custom content. And the process of doing custom content means that your media organization develops a very close and strategic relationship with that client. Mm. And so the long tail of it, or the long, not long tail, the um, long-term benefit of it is that you develop a really close strategic relationship with your client. Mm. And that is harder and harder to come by. But branded content is the vehicle for that.
0: But wouldn't it take, you know, special skills on the sales staff that you'd either have to train them in or bring someone in on the team that
1: so I again back to my point about patience and perseverance and listening, it's more of a personality type than it is training. Mm, okay. You need you need a certain personality type who's who's open to hearing what brands need what they want collaborating and then coming back with something that is effective
0: mm, a lot of work to be done for some publishers i can tell
1: yes it's true yes it is it's you know look i mean the media landscape is changing so quickly i that i mean that's the other thing It's an, i i double down on what i just said about personality type like you need people who are flexible. You need people who roll with it. You need people who are excited by challenges, not daunted by them. Um, you need people who are going to look at things as a learning experience, mm. it, because if if you know, there's too much fluidity right now for someone to be um, set in their ways.
0: You mentioned that Facebook and Google are obviously very strong players in the space, but how do you see? How do you see the future playing out for native advertising? Are you optimistic or?
1: Look, I think AI is only going to get us so far. Like in terms of, you know, like let's use the Unilever sustainability. And by the way, I have no idea. That's that's a totally hypothetical example. Right, Right, right. But I think, you know, if Unilever is successful, the audience needs to understand with nuance and context what their approach is. And I am optimistic that only content can do that, only custom content can do that. Look, I think for Unilever to be able to buy Google and Facebook and, you know, programmatic, they can find who they're looking for, where they are, and that's exciting. I just, I think custom content completes the puzzle by helping them serve them content that will give that audience viewer, reader, their nuance and context about what they mean about sustainability, what's important to them around sustainability. Mm. And I I don't think that's going to go away anytime soon.
0: Do you see this as, I know there's a lot of publishers struggling with their revenue streams. How do you see this? Is this uh, the lifesaver for those publishers?
1: No, I don't think it is. I think it's part of the puzzle. The, Mm. The media companies that are doing the best right now have very, diversified revenue streams Hmm. I'm very proud to say here at CBS Interactive we have a very diversified revenue stream we have OTT we have events we have um, branded content we have direct sales we have commerce you have to have all of it
0: Hmm. so CBS Interactive what else are we gonna see from you in the near future what are some of the big things that you're working on
1: um, the plans for 2019 have not been unveiled yet, and it would be premature for me to say anything.
0: All right. We'll have to wait for uh, YouTube to reveal that at Native Advertising Days 2019 then.
1: Exactly.
0: And thank you so much for taking time to being on the show, Mary Gail.
1: Of course.
0: I'll talk to you soon. Okay, bye. Bye. And for our listeners, if you like what you've heard, please drop us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud. And while you're there, make sure you subscribe. We're also available on PucketCast and Stitcher, but whatever platform you prefer for listening, remember that you can also be notified each time we launch a new episode by signing up for our podcast newsletter at nativeadvertisinginstitute.com slash podcast. That's all for now, folks. Next time, we'll have... Joanne Kerrigan, Head of Branded Content at News UK on the show. So make sure to be back for more insights on how to build your very own Native Advertising Powerhouse. That's it, you guys. Remember to subscribe to the Native Advertising Powerhouse podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud.